Hello, and welcome to the Theological Family Ministry Podcast, a podcast for parents as well as children and youth ministry leaders. We are dedicated to showing how theological study and biblical application relate to the discipleship of children and youth. As always, we're hosted by Pastor Ben Palaz, the family and discipleship pastor at Curtis Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and Pastor Anthony Trussoni, the supported elder at Poland Baptist Church in Poland, Maine. We're back at it, man. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Got some coffee, so how about okay, you? Good. Did you get a, a good blend this time? I know huh? you were struggling there for a while. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I'm going to have a sip of it in a second, but it's uh, it's pre-ground coffee. I got on sale from Star, uh, Starbucks coffee, and so usually it's not as good when it's pre-ground, So, but it just saved me a little bit of time. Okay. All right, Satan's coffee. I see. But exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't... I, could not tell you the last time I've been to a coffee shop and like purchased coffee from there. Um, and I like my coffee black, but when you go there, like it is just super strong. Uh, that, do you guys have Starbucks around you? I don't know. Like we the- do. It's like 25 minutes away. My wife will drive the 25 minutes because she likes it so much. But I actually find Starbucks to be weaker than what I make at home. Whoa. Okay. So you kind of like, <laughs> like the motor, <laughs> motor oil version. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm pumping in my veins. <laughs> well, that actually, you know, I, I made an assumption about, um, I guess what was sort of the standard there, and it it backfired. Um, it just it did not connect. So, yeah, ha- have you ever, uh, uh, in a relationship or a conversation, um, assume something about maybe shared meaning or shared understanding, and it kind of came back to bite you or led to conflict? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, I think that, especially with like rhetoric, and I, I've had that multiple times where I've used, especially, and I've lived throughout the country, and you know, and you euphemisms from areas, and, or you know, sarcasm. Sarcasm doesn't transfer well, right? So, and I've had to get my dig myself out of uh, you know ditches sometimes because I feel like even every region of our country is a little bit different sarcasm. But how about you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've had to um, learn that lesson the hard way that you can't always assume, and uh, and particularly uh, when you're crossing generational things, and, and the way and the rate that culture has changed in, at least where we live uh, in America, the rate of change has been dramatic um, because of technology and the different things that it introduces, and so generational changes can uh, or generational uh, gaps can also be almost like cultural gaps mm-hmm. you know like we were joking last time with the gen z slang well we've got people that live in the same you know cultural location but they would have no idea you know some of the stuff that that gen z would be throwing out with the the slang and so it's it's its own fashion, and I've heard too recently that uh, middle parts are in, side parts are out, um, baggy pants are in, and, and the slimmer pants or skinny pants are out, at least according to Gen Z. Well, not everyone's gotten the memo, and so uh, I think it just it goes to the it speaks to the fact that we cannot assume everything going from generation to generation and and there can be things about a particular time in history that um, it can just become like the spirit of the age and there's things that people take for granted that people a generation or two or three before them did not and 
those ideas change over time. But yet we've got all these generations who are cohabiting the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, what, what do we make of that? So that's what we talk about today. Um, so Tony, can we assume that our kids assume the same things that we did when we were younger or the things that we still assume today? Or are there areas where you found like, no, nah, they don't assume the same things? Yeah, I, I absolutely know that we cannot assume that our kids assume the same thing. So, which uh, saying the word assume a lot, uh, I assume yeah, I'm, I'm saying to it too come much. Up with a synonym. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I assume there's not a very good synonym to assume, but I <laughs> know <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, my kids shock me often, uh, you know, for their different assumptions. Actually, sometimes they shock me for their better assumptions. Um, you know, even honestly, I, w one of that is, um, I think my kids have a better assumption that uh, somebody who has a sin that I would see as particularly taboo and, you know, bothersome uh, to, you know, my generation sometimes and bringing stigma that, you know, my kids are just mainly focused on, on their separation from God, for example. And I think so there are definitely ways in which uh, that they have different assumptions. You know, I, I assume that malls were cool places when I was, you know, when I was my oldest oldest child's age i assume that you know malls were definitely cool places to be and they probably mostly assume somebody is referring to a ghost town when they refer to malls i mean i don't think they yeah. see there's something hopping uh it's probably also not true um again that not just my kids but probably their whole generation does not feel as much avert disgust over certain sins that we sometimes do Good examples. Yeah, I mean, I, this is a uh, not a sin thing, but I've encountered this a lot with my own kids, and it's fresh in my mind because I was just writing a study. Uh, we're doing a study on how to study the Bible, and I thought, oh, you know, covering Bible translations, differences in those, and why they have those differences could be helpful to people. And one of the things that we had to discuss was the translation of gender pronouns. And that's a whole another you know explosive uh, can of worms that yes, we have in our culture today. But these issues were being discussed before people were identifying themselves as they and Z and you know all yeah. that stuff. Um, it was like, how do you appropriately take it from one language to the next and capture the meaning? And depending on the translation that you're using, people today like so when I was a kid. If I heard, you know, blessed is the man that does this. Now, maybe some of this came from me being a male. And it's like, okay, well, one day, even though I'm a boy now, I'll be a man. It, well, of course it applies to other people. But I had an intuitive sense that this is not just talking about men mm -hmm. or, or if it said he who does this. Uh, and that is the way at least formal English works, that you can use a, a generic uh, singular or a generic, just a masculine singular to refer to a generic person. That's increasingly becoming not how you do it, yeah. and you he or she or one who uh, these kinds of things. But uh, some translations, like the ESV, do stick more with masculine pronouns when they're masculine in Greek or Hebrew. Yeah. And other translations, like the CSB or the NIV, have tried to make other choices. And um, it's a legitimate conversation. How do we accurately do this? But like I've had my kids go, well, why does it just say he? Why is it just the boys? You know, and I've got two daughters. Yeah. And so it's just a, like a natural question. Whereas I don't remember really challenging that. I just was like, well, yeah, of course it's talking about people. Um, and, and so 
I think it's it's something of the spirit of the age. And again, speech patterns have changed too. Um, so yeah, there, there's certainly ways that we do share assumptions. There's other ways though we sometimes may think that we can and we find out that we can't. Um, there's not a, a bridge of understanding there. There's a big gap. There's a, a chasm. So what do you think has happened or is it anything in particular um, that we can't just safely – say, yeah, okay, we hold these ideas, these things are sort of self-evident to us, um, but has something happened where we, we can't safely assume that they're also self-evident to our kids? Um, and, and, so like, does this happen with every generation? Is this inevitable or have there been significant things that have occurred that have sped this up or made this a bigger chasm? My answer to that question is yes. <laughs> I think both, you know, I, I think in most ways, probably this is just a product of the fact that cultures always evolve. I mean, they're continuing. It's always happening. Uh, but, you know, I do think it does so faster in an Internet generation like now, even to the point where I feel like in ways, even the idea of generational breakdown is starting to, well, break down. And, you know, there's probably more significant different assumptions between, you know, an 11-year-old and a 17- or 18-year-old. Uh, and there will be more and more so probably in the future. I, I think in some special interest groups uh, that uh, some of them have successfully indoctrinated assumptions uh, in our culture among young people in ways that are, are hard to avoid. Uh, I mean, I think we see that. For example, with the gender stuff, not just with the gender stuff, but with, you know, uh, with sexuality and with uh, with nature of of how we identify. Um, there has been, you know, groups that have a particular ideology that have done a lot to utilize the Internet, utilize kind of pressure to very quickly change assumptions among young people. And uh, I, I think things have eroded further in a uh, in a kind of my truth world, I like to describe. I don't think it's accurate to f describe young people as really postmodern because I think what we've done, I think what the uh, what the youngest generation as well as our culture abroad has kind of done is we've decided that kind of uh, the truth is almost like you know one of those graph papers where you have all the little boxes on it and everybody gets their claim of their box of their defining their reality. And then we just have to respect everybody else gets their box and, you know, figure out where your what what's inside your box, which isn't even postmodernism. Like postmodernism really is more intact than this kind of worldview. Uh, and uh, but I think that idea that everybody has my truth has quickly eroded a lot of assumptions. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I think. <clears throat> That, yeah, that, that things have happened culturally so that the rate of change happens faster than it did in previous generations. And if you look – if I'm not mistaken, I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I think I'm right, that looking back in history, what were sort of defined as distinct generations, that period lasted longer. And then as you move forward, those that time period starts compressing and so yeah. now it ends up being like 15 years or something. Um, and and the big driver of that, I think, and I, I'm – so I, I prepared these questions. These were on my mind, and then I heard about a book. Um, you've probably heard about it. It's called Generations by Gene Twenge. 
yeah. you may have heard an interview with her. So I, I read it over uh, Christmas and fascinating book. Um, and, and her conclusion is that the driver of generational changes and the rate of that is technology, which then helped to speed on individualism. And then that worked its way out in a lot of different contexts. She makes a pretty compelling case and, and it ties in like she's in I don't know that she's a Christian, um, but she seems to be hitting on some things that we've talked about this book before. Uh, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the mm-hmm. Modern Self. And so this, you know, psychologized self, I, I kind of I am what I feel I am. And so um, my deepest self is sexualized and all, all this kind of stuff. Well, she kind of took a similar angle that, you know, technology has allowed us to get to the point where gender is so fluid and I can sort of identify as what I want to be and who, who can hold me back. And I mean, that, that is the, like, that is individualism on steroids. And, um, she's, she's not so much making an assessment on that claim. Truman obviously was saying like, this is a problem. Um, but, I think she is right, at least in the diagnosis that technology has driven a lot of those things. And so um, her assessment, at least too, was that in up until the 60s, um, America had been more collectivist, not as much as, as China, but it was more of a collectivist. So let's, let's kind of keep the the standards and the family and these kind of things. And then that began to change. And, you know, I can decide whether or not I'm going to go to war. I can decide, you know, who I'm going to sleep with, um, you know, all the, all the different areas of life that that started to work itself out in. Um, so yeah, I mean, technology does advance, but I mean, the rate of technological change that we've seen even in our lifetime, um, has been dramatic. And so that has driven a lot, um, and so now, I mean, and there's a lot of stuff now, and, and she showed it in her book, and I've I'd seen plenty of this before. But like 2012 was like the year the world started just going to, to crap. Um, and it was like when social media went mobile, and the, a majority of Americans got smartphones. Um, and so just all this deterioration at this um, level of social connections. And uh, anyway, <clears throat> we could do a whole other thing on that. We will not digress now. Um, so like what technology in the 1960s was the big shift? Was it like Etch-A-Sketch? Because that would have been like a big technology. <laughs> it was Kool-Aid. G.I. <laughs> <G>. Joe. <laughs> um, so what would you say are some big cultural assumptions that have shifted uh, with time, even maybe from when we were children to now when we have our own children. Yes, I'm going to be careful with how I say the first one, but I think it has to be stated because it's a reality is that I think uh, there's been a big cultural assumption shift uh, that in the past, I think LGBTQ matters uh, and values were often associated with sexual deviancy. Uh, and, you know, regardless of whether. There was truth necessarily in that or not. I don't need to go into that. But, I I mean, I think generally in the 80s and 90s, it was more common that people assumed there was a significant sexual deviancy rooted or, or, you know, sexual uh, frivolousness uh, and uh, over-openness with those kind of things in a way that I don't think is as much assumed with those kind of matters today. I, I don't think almost at all with a very young, whether it should be or not. Um, 
I, I think that uh, some other big cultural assumptions that have shifted is that in the past, voices of authority of authority uh, were weighed higher than they are today. You know, the idea that you know somebody who. And the idea that somebody, a doctor who went to Harvard saying something, you know, the head of, you know, a medical agency or that, you know, even, you know, the head of a committee in the Senate saying something had more weight than I think it does now. Or even the or even a New York Times article has a lot more weight than it would have now. Um, I, I think another one, a significant one, is that a huge cultural assumption that shifted is that in the past... Even when we were young, there was more of a mentality that churches and pastors are safe and a net good. And I think that has definitively changed, where I think younger generations generally see churches are net bads and pastors are net bads. Mm. Yeah, those are those are good observations, I think. Um you mentioned the thing about authorities and you're just kind of talking about authority of expertise. And yes, that has been, you know, with the rise of the internet, it's like, well, yeah, I saw this video though. And this guy, you know, and he's like in a basement or something. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, but I saw it on Facebook, you know, um, or TikTok, and that yeah. definitely is a problem. Oh, go ahead. Or TikTok. <laughs> that's right. That's right. On the, it was on the TikTok, and, um, that has been a, major problem but also something i've noticed is the and this was already in place this is just ramped up but the erosion of authority of uh someone's position so mm -hmm. for instance i know people in education and i've heard this complaint a lot and observed it in other various ways where a child does something at school that's not good and gets called to account. The parents get involved, and rather than the parents going, okay, tell us about this. Okay, we'll handle this. It's like, well, did you do this? Did you ask yeah. them this? Did you give them a timeout? Did you give them warnings? Or My child would never do this, and it's just running to the defense of the child rather than holding the child to account. And I've talked to people who were both in the classroom, people in administration, and um, just – now I'm going off anecdotal evidence here. But I think there's enough smoke to say that, yeah, there's probably some fire. Um, and that's a, that's a big issue. Um, and people were questioning authority when we were children. But I mean, and, and Smith was just my individual family. But I'm going to, I don't know, what was it like for your family? Like if you would have been clowning around at school and your parents got involved, would you have been like, oh, yeah, you just wait till my mom and dad come up here? Or would it have been like, oh, no, let's not talk to mom and dad? Yeah, the latter, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, like one time I remember my my stepmom got involved on something where I genuinely feel like I had been treated unfairly. Yeah. Um, and even to this day, like uh, with some level of, of objectivity, um, I got kind of blasted for something that like wasn't even my fault. And so um, my stepmom did go and, and talk to the teacher. Um, that was the only time that I think that ever happened. And generally, it was like, well, yeah, okay, you may not like what the teacher's doing, but they're the teacher, so yeah. guess you better get on board. Um, and not everybody shares that assumption now, and even with parents, um, but and certainly kids, you know, wanting to get their their parents involved. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the stuff around gender. Um, I think that that can be an issue, and I mean, yes, there's some some crazy, and not just with 
the LGB stuff, but then now you have the introduction of the T. That was, I mean, there were people doing a little bit of that back in like the 80s and 90s. That was very fringe though. Now I've seen, I think it's like close to 20% of Gen Z identifies as non-binary. Um, that is a an alarming and just a, you know, kind of, head-turning uh, rate of change at people who are kind of trying to figure things out. Um, so that, that that's a big deal. So Tony, when when it comes to the ways that parents and kids interact, have, have you noticed changes from like the time when you were a kid and you your own family observing others and, and then kind of what you see now? Yeah, I do notice. Uh, but I mean, I think even before our generation, those assumptions changed. I mean, I, you know, do you know why the silent generation was called the silent generation? Uh, I've heard different things, but so why would you say? My understanding is that the silent generation, one I've read, was basically the idea that better seen, not heard. And uh, when that's how kind of how they were raised. And so it was kind of a heavy authoritarian. So literally it would have been the silent generation was a generation of people that were raised to not really question authority to not just submit to parents, but, you know, really to not question at all. And uh, and so obviously that's not at all the case today. <laughs> and uh, the, the I think they're going to be more of an assumption now of an equal playing ground and less need for respect from children relating to adults than even it was again in the 80s and 90s when we were young. Uh, I, I think they don't. Uh, young people do not often assume a traditional family at all. You know, I know that in the 80s and 90s, divorce rates were still high. But I, I think almost the idea of a family, especially where we're at, they, I, I don't feel like there is even one monolithic thing that is kind of the default of what a family is in Maine. I mean, you know, even I mean, most most people we interact with uh, that have kids that are that age, they it's not really there's not really a default statistic on how their household looks and i think that's reflected in you know young people i've interacted with or they aren't shocked at all that or don't even assume at all that a father and mother that are married and that are you know the both the parents of the child are going to be together in the household again obviously that didn't always happen in the past but i think to some degree it was somewhat of an assumption would you agree with that yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of my daughter's classmates asked her recently, she knew that my wife was pregnant and she was like, Oh, is your mom married? Yeah. You know, and my, my daughter was just like incredulous. Like, well, of course she is. But yeah, I mean, she's probably half the kids in her class and this is at a Christian school. Probably half of them are coming from either divorced or never married situations. And, um, and I mean, we're in the buckle of the Bible belt in the South, you know, you're up in, in new England where, you know, probably, uh, the cultural, Christianity is is far receded, you know, past what it is here. So, yeah, yeah I, I think that's definitely one of the biggest things. Um, and yeah, like in some divorce rates are uh, lower; they're starting to trend down. But also, there's fewer people getting married. And yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah I mean, as you talked about the diminishing of, of parental authority, um, and this is more like kids to adults, but. And some of this may be cultural and regional. Um, I've been surprised at the number of kids who would just call me by my first name. Yeah. Um, 
And I mean, I'm not like, hey, watch your mouth, Johnny. But it is a little bit shocking sometimes when I um, would hear that. Now, my wife said, like, one of the places she grew up, if you knew an adult, you didn't just call them, like, you know, Miss uh, Miss Jan. You called her Mrs. Smith. Like, yeah. you, you didn't even use the first name. Whereas, like, I was used to calling someone by, you know, Miss or Mr., you know, their first name. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I've had a number of kids just call me, like, hey, Ben. <laughs> um, and so, and again, some of that may be regional, but I mean, you, the, your facial expression kind of showed like, yeah, and you grew up in a different region of the country, um, than I did. So you see that, but yeah, the ways, uh, I think diminish parental authority. I, I hear sort of, I don't, I've never had a conversation with somebody about this. My wife has told me about some of these things, but like, um, like needing parents feeling that they need consent from their children. Like, you know, it's their body, it's their choice. If they want to wear shoes, they can wear shoes, but they don't have to wear shoes and, and things like that. Uh, and that, that would, I don't know if that's the far progressive end or if that's becoming more mainstream. Um, but, you know, what they eat, what they wear, these kinds of things where they, they're, like you said, they're seen more as equals. Mm-hmm. Um, where, yes, we're, we're equal in value. I think, though, that God has given us authority, and so if I say, put your shoes on, <laughs> we're going into the store, that that needs to happen. Um, but uh, th- there's way. I mean, you and I are both millennials. We were born in the 80s. There's ways, though, where I, I feel like I'm from another generation. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, anyway, so when it what it what do you see when it comes to what parents should provide for their kids? Do you see shifts in what people think and assume versus, you know, a while ago back in the, back in the day? I I think a big one is it's not assumed that they should expect stability from parent figures. And Hmm. as in that, basically that I I think almost like children are, are raised up more and more in such a way that, they, you know, they shouldn't expect much of anything in a way from parents that, you know, that they shouldn't, that, that they should to some degree suspect that, you know, that, that the marriage at home might break down, expect that, you know, there will not be a consistency in the household and, you know, not be a much family time because a lot of those things have really faded away. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it is at the same time more assumed that parents should support and fuel extracurriculars. So parents are not expected to assume to support, the, uh, provide this kind of stability, provide this kind of structure in their life. But they are assumed to be providing a ride to Johnny's games and, uh, you know, or, you know, acceptance and encouragement into every other opportunity that the child wants. And I think another one is, is family dinner and time around the table. I, I, I think mm-hmm. there is, it's, it's more and more rare that people assume that children assume that, that we should be eating together that we should be spending time together when we're eating dinner and that we, you know, we should not just be doing our own thing. Yeah, I definitely uh, have noticed those things as well. I see it too, the, the, picking up on the, the extracurriculars and that kind of thing, there's this emphasis like that you've got to provide your kid every possible enriching thing, music lessons, sports lessons, um, 
things that will enhance their SAT score and to basically give them the best possible resume to get into college. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we talked about this uh, several episodes ago on the um, the college admission scandal and the people were paying, you know, like half a million dollars to get their kids into to these elite schools. Um, and kind of connected with that is that we have to provide safety, physical safety. Yeah. And there, there can be some some differing views on this, even like on the political spectrum. But um, one of the things in that book that I found interesting that kids today, so that the current generation, whether some people call she called them polar, some people call them Gen Alpha, um, that they are the safest generation on record so far. They're not getting killed in accidents, and they're not going to the emergency room for non-fatal accidents. They're just not mm-hmm. getting hurt. Because they're not playing outside, they're not doing things that are even you know remotely risky. Now they may be like blowing people up on video games, um, but they're not doing physical activity that's going yeah. to harm them. And and some of that's due to the over litigiousness of our society. Um, we're just ready to sue anybody, and and, and safety is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but. Um, there, there's some of the assumptions that uh, – and actually a, a guy from our church was talking about a conversation he had. Uh, he was telling me this last night. He was at a wedding and some distant relatives that, that um, he did not think were believers. And one of the things they were saying about their their kids, like, you know, the best thing we can do is just make sure that they're safe. And so it, it related to doing some risky, immoral, and illegal behavior, and they were talking about how they dealt with that, yeah. and it was – you know. Giving him guidelines basically to be safe, not like, son, what are you doing? Yeah. No. Like that that's that's not acceptable. Like let's think about the consequences of this. Um, it was just like, well, here, here's how you do that in a safe manner. Um, and so I, I know Gen X in particular, people that were you know born in the kind of mid uh, late 60s up until 1979, they will joke about how hard they had it growing up. And they weren't really supervised and they did a lot of riskier things. Um, and so then they look at people, I mean, our generation was kind of pampered and then it's, it's, you know, amped up even more now. Um, the things that, um, people are either don't do or are not allowed to do. We can't do that because that's not safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there are actually, I mean, I think some research to show like kids, there's damaging effects to that when they don't understand what can actually hurt them. Um, learning in a, a lower stakes environment but anyway not so much trying to evaluate all that um as we we're just kind of discuss the reality yeah. that is there you know I, I think some of these things have have changed uh what parents are expected to provide for their kids just the best possible thing or even every some people don't do christmas lists i think many people do but like this expectation oh my kid asked for this on their christmas list therefore i must buy it yeah and I mean, I, now again, this could have been unique to my family, but I never had the assumption that just because I, you know, said I would like this, then I was going to get it. Um, and my wife certainly did not either. Um, and that's, I don't know, it just seems to be, it doesn't matter how much it costs. I'm like, well, they want it, so I guess I have to get it for them. Um, so, what are some positive or beneficial ways that, that you see that, that cultural assumptions of, um, rising generations are changing because it's not like that all change is bad. That's not the point we're making. We're saying, yes, there have been changes, but 
we talked about these changes in, in different arenas that we've seen. What are ways that you see sort of the, the wider spirit of the age affecting the church um, or maybe putting a spiritual cloak on top of worldly assumptions um, when really maybe the worldly assumptions are driving the train for some of these changes? Yeah, so uh, I'll define a term first, egalitarianism, which is a theological view that says basically that there are no unique gender roles in the church or in the home. Uh, I think it's an unbiblical view, uh, but, it, you know, there's been a long time where there's been people that have had differences, complementarians and egalitarians, and generally some degree of respectful civil engagement. But now I think that there's kind of a new, young, and very pharisaical egalitarianism that's been a product of this, where it's kind of, you know, not only not only is the non-egalitarian wrong, but the non-egalitarian is, you know, is you know, their motivations itself, you know, their desires, you know, are, are distorted and wicked, almost like they're Dr. Evil, basically. I mean, <laughs> I think, again, we're seeing this in some of the popular, uh, some popular uh, that books and popular teachings that have kind of spread out there. And I think that is product of the spirit of the age, again, where it's that you we don't just disagree with something but that we go to kind of cultural war against something that we you know cancel things that we disagree with i I think there's there has been an excusing and embracing of angry leaders while simultaneously calling for accountability uh kind of almost like this kind of set this contradiction and i think again that's a product of of this age where you know everything is every you know i think in an internet age extremism has so much more of a voice has so much more of an opportunity because especially in an age where we don't want nuance where you know the internet is not developed to provide nuance and complexity would you agree with that (laughs) (laughs) hey man don't be knocking the tiktok yeah Uh, and and i think further churches uh that uh seem to be more accommodating of members and leaders without sexual fidelity. I mean, I think an example of this has been the, the I, I've read that far more Gen Z, Gen Z people, Gen Zers are members of churches while living with people outside of marriage than really has ever happened among evangelical churches in the past. And so it seems to be just something that, you know, that is another aspect that we, most of, uh, the younger generation doesn't think that there's anything inherently wrong or questionable about living together uh, and maybe never even getting married. And I think churches have at times just decided not to push back on this. And there's a lot of studies that show among evangelicals, living together rates are almost the same as the culture at large, even among church attending evangelicals. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. So what would you add to that, though? One of the things it, it piggybacks on something we just talked about, but the the ways in which there's this assumption that oh, I've got to provide the good life for my child, and what the good life entails is all these trips. And again, this is a slice of a certain segment of the population. This is not everybody. Uh, I get that. Um, this is just one area that I've seen it where you know going on all these trips, the you know technology. Um, 
extracurricular kind of things. And it's like, well, I'm supposed to love and care for my child, right? And then so it's this, oh, it's this biblical thing. God's called us to do this. But some of the things really underneath it are more of a worldly assumption. And this is not how the Bible necessarily tells you this is how you nurture your child. This is how you care for them. That, that's one of the things I think that, that stands out to me the most or um, that we need to have you know this family time. And so then that um, that's a good thing. But that becomes a spiritual cloak for – and then we're going to disengage from the body of Christ because, well, we're doing all this stuff during the week, and so now we need to have family time on Sunday. We're going to go on this trip together, and um, that can be, I think, a – yeah, it can become a form of, whether intentionally or not, using spiritual cloaks to – cover over worldly assumptions. So what are some some positive or beneficial ways that you see cultural assumptions changing among rising generations? You mentioned earlier about your kids seeing something about a sin that was, you know, you would have thought was a little more taboo, and they're just like, well, that person's separated from God. Uh, They didn't see it as like an extra bad one. Um, Anything else that you see that's like, this is actually a good change? Because not not all change is bad, and I don't think either one of us are trying to make that claim. Well, I think some of the positives, actually, I think are kind of the, you know, the other side of the coin of the negatives, actually. Because, you know, as much as we're bringing up that as a negative in ways that they question authority more, you know, that the idea of questioning authority, the assumption that we can do that is changing. I think there's a benefit of that. I think there's a growing acceptance among the younger generation that ex- that questioning leaders is okay, healthy, uh, and maybe even godly. And I think that, I mean, that's true. I mean, the Apostle Paul encouraged people to question him by the Bible. I mean, to be a Berean. And I think perhaps, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a good thing that a young, that as we preach, as we teach the word to a younger generation, we might be preaching a word and teaching a word to people that will not just take our words as gospel, which can be very healthy, both for us as well as for that generation. Uh, I, I think that we are separating gender theology from gender constructs is another assumption. And so, you know, we can have discussions about theology around gender without having a lot of the baggage about assumptions in gender roles uh, that because, again, a lot of those assumptions just have gone away and they're not being had. And, and I think that, that can be a helpful, positive thing. I, I think many assume that not all, but there's many young people that assume that the greatest need for all lost people, whether they're transgender or homosexual, whether they are uh, a, that, an idolatrously greedy person, it's all the same, that, they, that their greatest need is Jesus. And I think that's a healthy assumption. Uh, and I think there is a more natural thought towards the marginalized among them. And we can show that to them that Jesus has this heart in spades. So what would you add to that? Uh, All good points. Um, Some of the things I've seen, you know, there there is this, you mentioned the care for, concern for the marginalized, and a a desire to see, I guess, the the horizontal ethical implications of the gospel lived out. And, And so even among 
say Gen Z, just younger people who are lost, they, they share some of those assumptions or mm-hmm. those desires of seeing like, of course we would do this. And that can be um, avenues, I think, that we can point them to Christ. And we can show how the gospel actually fulfills those. Um, Have you heard of the Australian guy, Mark Sayers? Uh, Remind me. I've heard the name. I'm blanking on who it is. He's an Australian pastor. He's talked about uh, cultural decay and stuff um, in Western society. Lives in Melbourne. And just how how the gospel, how Christianity confronts uh, the cultural idols, whether, you know, there was cultural conservatism and there's cultural liberalism and things like that. And that we're not for either one. Yeah. It, you know, Jesus gives us a new way. But one of the, his diagnoses uh, is that secular people, they they like the things, the ethical things, at least some of the ethical things of the Bible. They don't like the sexual part. But um, the I guess the love one another and care for one another kind of stuff. And they're like, of course, this is good. And yeah. he's like, they want the benefits of the kingdom without the king. Mm-hmm. He's, it just doesn't come that way. You have to have the king to have all this. Um, and so I think that can be an avenue that, that we can help connect. Like, hey, these things that you want, they are good. They are objectively inherently good. And here's probably why even you, you assume these things are good because Christianity made such an impact. And um, – Let's you know now. Christianity is not just a vehicle for social justice or something like that, um, but it does lead to social implications, mm-hmm. and I think that that is a helpful thing. And, and as individualistic as we have become, there are still ways where uh, younger people want they're feeling discontent with the online lives, and you know we're connected, you know, in air quotes, um, in a way that we never have been. Yet there's just these alarming rates of loneliness. Um, people are not actually going out as much. Um, I mean, that could even be just to go socialize with people to go have dinner. It could be going out to go clubbing and go sin or something. But people are not like they're staying home and they're just like staying on on the internet. Um, that's kind of a pitiful. I mean, that's just, just kind of sad. Like if you're there yeah. by yourself just on the internet. Um, and so helping people see like the gospel gives us. A community and a family in the church, and so um, again, some of these things that they are assuming are good and they want, Christ fulfills. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how about on the other side? What are some of the challenges that these changing cultural assumptions pose, um, particularly for parents and kids relating to one another, and and maybe even um, relating to grandparents on an older generation and just you know generations beyond what their parents are. Yeah, so I think there is a great need uh, to be intentional and compassionate as we speak into their lives because I think that we have to understand that there is even a gap in understanding of ethics itself. And because of that, I think that we need to be called to patience and called to that celebration of them because i think that they have an assumption that the i think a lot of other generations are very very critical and antagonistic towards them and so Mm -hmm. and i think that's going to call us towards compassion rather than you know this kind of mocking that we can have so i i think we're going to be need to be more careful and focused 
when we talk about any kind of minority group, whether it be a sexual minority, whether it be a racial minority. Uh, and, you know, we need to, because they will catch, they will catch our prejudice. And we, and so I think we're going to need, even, even on things that are morality issues, on minority uh, related to lifestyle decisions, I think we're going to need to be, be intentional in the words that we choose and not, not quick to prejudice, not quick to mock at all, but very, very willing to focus on the issues at hand. I, I think that children, um, that will need to, on the other hand, will need to learn to honor parents. Uh, learn that they're going to need to learn that it's not a tradition, but it's a command. Because I think that the tradition of honoring your parents has gone away. But we can teach our children mm-hmm. that even if the tradition has gone away, the command has not. Mm-hmm. Would you add to that? No. That's well said. Um, I think that kind of a summary of that. It's both sides needing humility towards one another. And I had uh, – not everything I'm saying in here is coming from that generation's book, but it is fresh in my mind. And I I wrote it, and then I thought – I heard about the book and thought, oh, I want to read this in preparation. Um, and it was a very insightful book. And one of the the insights you know that I drew away from there – or I, I won't say insight. It was something uh, I became aware of. Like I don't – I spend plenty of time on the internet but not like on social media. Yeah. And so I had never – had, had you heard the term OK Boomer? I have 100% heard the term OK Boomer. OK. So I, I mean I immediately kind of knew what it was referring to. I had never heard that. Um, and so – but that's kind of this dismissiveness um, yeah. about – you know from – a younger generation back to an older one. They're like, oh, you know, they were they were born on third base and they think they hit a triple, you know, and um, kind of some dismissiveness towards them. And and the thing too, when you look at some of that data, some of the younger generations, and again, social media and other internet venues are helping to to reinforce some of these these, these attitudes, but. Millennials and Gen Z having these perceptions of certain things, and maybe in their own their own situation it was true, but that it is like gospel truth for everyone in their generation. So, for example, millennials um, that you know were poor and can't get jobs and can't buy houses. Actually, the data says something way different, like way different. Gen Z um, has had an issue with – they felt that women are oppressed in the workplace and in broader society, education, all these kind of things. They're being held down. Well, the data once again says something vastly different. Women are getting more college – bachelor's degrees than men. And then at you know like professional level, they're getting – they're about 50-50. The pay gap is still there, but it is narrowing considerably. And so – there's this perception of, oh, how bad it is and all the people above us are holding us down when in reality that's just not what is happening. And so one of the challenges, again, of spending so much time in the algorithm-driven echo chamber um, of social media mm-hmm. is that it's just going to reinforce some of those divisions. And people, if they feel – I mean their feelings are real. They feel like they're being held down or they're being mistreated um, when they're not actually – at least not in the to the same extent as maybe the feelings are are saying. Um, so you've got that, but then you also, like you said, the antagonism from the older generations coming down, 
and um, saying, well, you know, we had it, we did it like this back in my day. And and one of the things this lady said um, was that the the charge that the the younger generations are softer is accurate. And it's, I mean, because of technology, like yeah. we're not out there with the washing board and the tub scrubbing our clothes. We throw them a washing machine and then a dryer. You know, <laughs> it's a whole lot easier. Um, we're not out there slaving over the fire to cook food. Uh, <laughs> you know, after you've caught it. Yeah. Um, you, you know, and so there are ways that we are becoming softer. Um, but, you know, so and I, I've heard this. Uh, somebody who was a millennial who was saying, you know, people say that hey, they're they're getting on us about the participation trophies and this kind of stuff. He's like, but who gave? We didn't give ourselves these trophies. No. You guys gave them to us. Exactly. And, <laughs> no. You know, so like you shoulder some of the blame here. Um, and so just this, an attitude of humility towards one another. And I mean, in the church in particular, that, that's what we're focused on. People who walk with Christ, that we've got to have that attitude um, in families. Um, and, and we'll get to the local church here in a minute, but you know, in families of having that attitude, and that okay, maybe there's something that I'm missing here, yeah. and okay, here, let me listen to try to move closer to you. But it, it, it takes both um, both sides doing that, um, and yeah. a willingness to be corrected on things, and not sometimes I think our culture can go shift too far and then it's like if it's young and it's new they're, they're enlightened and they're you know the idealism of youth and we should just listen to whatever they say yeah. well no because there's things that young people want to say and do that it's i'm sorry it's just dumb mm -hmm. it, it, it is but there's also things that older people sometimes will say and want to do and you're like no what no we can't do that um that's that's not good and so um yeah, let, let's just have wisdom and, and humility. Um, well, and I think so part how of that with wisdom local and churches? How can local churches help to bridge some of these assumption gaps and, and help move generations towards one another in love and in understanding? Yeah, so I, I'll start uh, by saying something actually I think does connect to the last, last uh, discussion as well, part of the discussion, is that the reality is that even with some of these changes in the trends they're, they're changes in kind of a relatively small portion and they don't explain the whole generation and i think that's part of the humility of going forward because even with the lgbtq stuff the reality is that there are gen zers and gen alphas that are and will be very even lost people that are very opposed to some of the trans stuff and uh, and mm -hmm. like a larger amount that we think of and and I think of you know a Christian leader and me connecting to churches uh, Russell Moore I know that he had some disagreements with some other religious leaders in the SBC a year or two ago I remember uh, a, a pastor actually uh, in the South and relatively in your neck of the woods, I believe, had commented, you know, this is what happens when you put uh, somebody from the, you know, uh, somebody who received, grew up receiving participation trophies and a leadership in the SBC. And I think Russell Moore responded, I don't think I ever got a participation trophy in my life. <laughs> you know, Cause not everybody. Yeah, did. I don't think that, I don't think those guys are that far apart in age. <laughs> no, no, they are just a good way of dismissing each other. But yeah, I so but I think instead of doing the stereotype thing and instead of, you know, making the cutesy videos that both generations make, I think informing about uh, the progression, uh, uh, forming all generations about the progressing of our culture, 
uh, thing uh, through the truths that we are both being uh, influenced by. Because I think the, the reality is that it's not just the case that Gen Z is becoming one thing and then, you know, that Gen X is holding the line. That's actually not true. What's actually happening yeah. is that both are shifting in a lot of these cultural things and that the Gen X or the millennial or the silent generation just don't see that their feet are slipping because they're not as far gone. And so I think maybe some of the ways that that uh, churches can navigate this is read some books like uh, there's you know the rise and triumph of the modern self by uh, that uh, the by Culturman I think is a really helpful resource to see what's actually happening or 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 five lies of that uh, five there's a new book by Rosario Butterfield uh, five lies of our anti-Christian age I think is the name of it and uh, and I think it's pretty helpful I think it's a little bit of a over response at times but I think it helps us understand what's going on underneath our feet whether we are a Gen Z or or Gen X or Gen whatever. I think also the church will need to provide more times for families to be together because of this. Because of the differences in our assumptions, we need to actually provide opportunities that we as that the churches define assumptions together, allow assumptions to be defined and realized while the generations are together. Uh, even in the reality that more and more this is this fragmented world. And the fragmented world is what's producing. And to the point where, again, you know, literally Gen Zers and Millennials and, you know, Gen Xers, they go on different websites. That's how fragmented the world is. And and so when that world where it's creating these huge assumption differences, I think the church needs to provide a consistency. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think the church can be. And I think there are many churches who are, but that we have to continually work at this to be a self-conscious, you know, family of God. And we're not just, well, we've got the youth group and we've got the, you know, the senior citizens thing here, but that we are together one body. We are such and such church and making avenues for those, those generations to overlap, um, encourage, uh, somebody, we're, we're doing this uh, marriage dinner around Valentine's Day, and one of the drivers who's helping to um, plan this made the comment, and from some things, some experiences she'd had, she had, you know, I think we have some older adults who would like to come to this, but because it's dark by the time it ends, they'd be reluctant to because they don't like to drive in the dark. And yeah. so if we can come up with a way for some, like a younger couple to say, well, here, we'll pick you up and then we'll drop you back off. That's uh, a very practical way of, to love, to build some yeah. uh, connection there. Uh, something we have done, uh, we didn't do it this past year, um, I'd like to go back to it, but is the Pray For Me campaign. And you pair up people from an you know, adult, so they're going to by default be from a different generation with a either a high school or middle school student or then or they pray for a, a elementary child and their family. And uh, it's a way of crossing those generational barriers and letting them like, oh, this is a real person. Oh, this person checks in with me. They came to my ball game or they yeah. – um, got me a birthday present or, well, you know, whatever, like they, they love me. Um, and those kinds of things, just small, but practical ways to make them overlap. Um, mentoring, we, we did an episode on that and trying to help them see, okay, these people are not the enemy. 
both both ways. The older people are not against you, and older people, the younger people, are not against you. And um, yeah, I mean, we just need more of that because yeah, the society around us is becoming so fragmented um, that our it's going to be easy to default to what's happening around us, and so not we we have to just encourage people increasingly not to retreat into what's comfortable with the people that are your age and you know you you have the same taste in music and fashion and whatever else speech patterns um but that we move towards one another in love yeah so um so yeah you mentioned some good resources um i have heard well i've read the truman one i've, I've heard of the other one yeah and i i would recommend the the gene twangy book uh, as well it's a little heavy on research so if that's not your thing you may find it dry but you could look up some interviews she's been on uh, russell moore's podcast she was on uh, gospel bound um and again i don't know that she's a christian um and she doesn't give a ton of evaluation either she just sort of reports and gives you some analysis of why she thinks some of these changes have occurred um and she made a what i thought was a, a good observation in her conclusion um, she said you know the challenge of the six living generations that we have is to find a way for technology to bring us together instead of driving us apart well i would disagree with her to some extent i don't think technology is the key we do need to find a way to come together instead of driving us apart and i don't think technology is going to be the savior uh, i think it is Local churches centered around Jesus um, that can be the the driver of that. And we can stand out from the culture and not be as fragmented and uh, as divided. But instead, I mean, just think of the evangelistic power of like, wow, this person that's 75 or 85 is, you know, has a relationship with this 15-year-old. And, you know, this this uh, Gen X couple is investing in this this uh, Gen Z, you know, they, these, this couple, they just got married and they're different races or whatever. Like th those things can be uh, a powerful witness and, and not just be carried along by the divisive spirit of our age. Yeah. So with that, I think we'll sign off. But uh, Tony, thanks for thinking with me about this. It was a good conversation. Yeah, it's a good discussion. So, all right. All right. God bless. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Family Ministry Podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends on social media. All new episodes are available to listen to on Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, Spreaker, and iTunes. We hope you have a great week, and join us again every first and third Thursday.